Why does it even matter that Jesus has healed the blind man? Why does John show us this episode? Will you look into this question with me today on Bible Study Podcast? Welcome back to Bible Study Podcast. It's Friday and I'm your host, Justin, your guide as we tour through the Gospel of John. We have a lot to cover in today's podcast, so I just want to quickly let you know that you can always reach me with any questions, comments, or concerns at BibleStudyPodcastJustin at gmail.com. I also want to ask you to be in prayer for the founder of this ministry, Toby, as he and his family have put their house on the market. They're planning to move to the Midwest of the USA to help start churches, so Please be in prayer for them as they try to tie up all the loose ends here and get started out there. So now please join me in prayer as we begin our study of John 9. Our Father, we we praise you for allowing us to worship at your feet. We thank you for displaying your glory in our lives and, and letting us be a part of the chorus that can lift up your name before all nations in praise. Guide us through your word tonight and help us to see what it is that you're communicating to us about yourself. We love you, Lord, and we pray all these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Tonight we're going to pick right up in uh, John chapter 9 at verse 13, but we're going to be moving pretty well through this because we're going to try to get all the way through verse 41 tonight. Now the reason we'll be covering so much today is that I believe this passage in its entirety works together beautifully to set us up for what we'll see in John 10, where Jesus will explain how he is the great shepherd. If you will, though, just consider with me for a moment where John has taken us up to this point as we venture through his gospel, that is, his good news about Jesus. Remember that we began with the realization that the Word, who is God, took on flesh and dwelt among us. We saw Jesus call those who were faithful to him to follow, and they witnessed his first showing that he is no ordinary man, as he showed his control over nature by turning the water into wine. Remember seeing Jesus' zeal and jealousy for the glory of God to be made known as he cleared the temple which had been defiled by the vendors. Then John told us of his conversation with Nicodemus, a man who was supposed to be a teacher of God's law but had no clue as to what Jesus was teaching. Going from Jerusalem through Judea out to Samaria, we saw Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well, teaching us that Jesus was indeed bringing life to all and restoring rightful worship of the Father. Remember the healings of the royal official and the lame man on the Sabbath that led to the teaching that Jesus has been given the authority to one day judge both us and separate those who believe in him from those who do not. Remember Jesus leading the people into the promised land anew as he fed the 5,000 and told the people that he was the bread that gives life. Remember Jesus rising to teach at the temple during the feast, drawing the rage of the Pharisees and ruling Jews as he told that he was the living waters that quenched thirst and he was the light of the world. Remember his mercy in dealing with the adulterous woman and remember just last week as we saw Jesus give sight to the man born blind. Now you may be thinking, we've got a lot to cover tonight, so why is he going through all of this again? Well, I'm going through it because I think that at this point we need to see where John has led us to in order to fully grasp the importance 
of this debate between the Jewish leaders and the man who is blind and can now see. You see, there is something very specific that I believe John, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, is leading us to see so that when we get to Jesus' claim to be the Good Shepherd, which we will see in John chapter 10, we'll see the power of that parable. And that's one of the few parables that is even given in the Gospel of John. So we'll see the impact of what he is saying. And as we have mentioned, the cross is fully in view at this stage. But after the events surrounding the parable of the Good Shepherd and the raising of Lazarus, we'll see not only a view of the cross, but we will very quickly begin ascending the hill leading us there. So we are, in a sense, at a major hinging point of the Gospel of John. And that is why this section is so critical. So let's begin by starting at verse 13, where the neighbors and the passerbys have brought the man who was born blind but now sees before the Pharisees, who are apparently assembled in a council-type setting. The occasion of this visit, though, is not one of praise and rejoicing, but rather it's a legal matter. As verse 14 points out that Jesus' healing of this man took place on no other day than the Sabbath, of course. And this obviously rubbed the Pharisees the wrong way, and so the investigation into this man's supposed healing begins. So as verse 15 opens up, the Pharisees ask the man, How is it that he now sees? And so he informs them of the story just as we read last time. Jesus made the clay. He put it on my eyes, told me to wash. I did, and now I can see. And so verse 16 gives us the response of the Pharisees, as some of them were saying, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. Now isn't it funny that even within the experts of the Jewish law, there's a division as to how they should even handle this case, much less how they react to it. Some have chosen to follow a very strict path, noting that Jesus could not be from God as he doesn't keep the Sabbath, part of God's law. Others, though, point out that a man who was in sin could not perform acts like this, like giving sight to a man who was born blind. What's the solution, then? Well, their next move is actually pretty smooth and is a pretty common tactic among interrogations. You see, when the interrogator can't get information out of the person they are targeting, Jesus in this instance, they'll often try to get the information they want from one of the target's followers or his friends, figuring they may slip up and give out privileged information that would help their case. So they decide to ask the man what he thinks about Jesus. Of course, they don't really care what he thinks. They're just trying to trap Jesus. But the plan doesn't really work as well when the man answers, he's a prophet. Now, does this tell us anything about the man's view of Jesus? Of course it does. It, it shows us that he at least recognizes that a miracle was performed on him by Jesus. And that this miracle is a sign that the message that Jesus speaks is a message from God. So his evaluation, while being true, surely has caused the Pharisees to shudder. Consider the implication of the man's statement just for a moment, though. If it is indeed true that this man received sight when he had been born blind, then it is surely a miracle. But the Jews were well aware of the purpose of miracles. Miracles are given not for entertainment, not to just amaze or to amuse people, but rather they are given to verify that the message that a certain messenger is giving is indeed from God. 
That is, a person's testimony is verified as true before God by the acts of God, which are miracles. So if this miracle truly happened, then the one through whom the miracle was performed is giving a message that is truly verified by God. In other words, if this miracle truly happened, then the message Jesus is teaching and proclaiming, messages like, I am the light of the world, I am the living water, I am the bread of life, these would be verified by none other than God himself. And seeing as the Pharisees disagree with the message of Jesus, it is crucial to their cause to show that there is a flaw somewhere in this line of reasoning. They obviously, though, can't go against the idea that miracles confirm a message from God, or they would take the chair out from under themselves. As they claim the scriptures were authoritative because they were inspired by God. Well, how did they know that? Because they were confirmed by God with miracles. So what do you do? Well, if you can't go after inspiration, you have to go after the claim that the miracles actually performed. You challenge the man's testimony that he was truly blind from birth. Now, I'm going through all of this kind of reasoning at this point because I want you to understand the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders were not just acting out of stupidity. They weren't taking illogical leaps in their thinking to arrive at the conclusions or the methods which they did. We'll see what is going on with them a little later, but on the contrary, they were very much in line with logical thinking as they went about this investigation. The problem the Pharisees suffered from was not a problem of right reasoning. It wasn't a question of that. It was a question of wrong assumptions. They started with the wrong assumptions that Jesus was not of God because he opposed them. And that follows from their assumption that they were in fact following God. So don't be disillusioned into thinking that the Pharisees were just morons or something. That they just didn't know what they were talking about and they just got into these bad arguments. They were really uh, well aware of the ramification of their thoughts, and they knew exactly what they were going for. Now, having decided that the method they would take would be to question the miracle, in verse 18 we see that they called the man's parents into the trial. Why? Because they didn't believe he was born blind. Now, why is this important? If the Pharisees can show that he wasn't always blind, they could make the argument that Jesus had not actually performed a miracle. How? Because they could just say, Hey, could it have just been a part of the man's sight getting better? Not God restoring the man's eyes completely. You see, there's a totally different ballgame between somebody who has been blind forever, you know, as long as they have lived, and somebody who has just been blind, say, the last month, last year, last two years. So the questioning begins in verse 19, where the Pharisees ask the parents, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? The parents probably shook as they heard the question, and as they considered their answer. You see, verse 22 tells us that his parents were afraid of the Jews, because they had already agreed that if anyone confessed Jesus to be the Christ, that is, the Messiah, he was to be put out of the synagogue. This is no small threat to the Jewish people, for there's more at stake than just having a place to go to church. No, the synagogue was the center of life for the people. It's where they went daily to worship. It's where they went to meet with family. It's the center of everything. I mean, to be put out of the synagogue was essentially to be excommunicated 
from your family, your business, your very life. It's a huge deal. And this is the predicament that we find the parents in as they prepare to answer this question. And yet their answer is a brilliant one. You know, and some are chasing them as acting out of cowardness. But the fact is, their answer achieves all that's needed from them without getting themselves in hot water. Their answer was, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But now, he sees. And how he now sees, we don't know. Or who opened his eyes? We don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. They literally say, Hey, he's a man. You ask him. Why are you asking us? They affirm that the man was indeed born blind, but made no comment as to how he now sees. What a smooth move to navigate the politics of this Pharisaic trial. I mean, the Pharisees are pretty smooth themselves. For them to actually be able to outfox them, that's a pretty, it's a pretty big deal. But the result, of course, is that in verse 24, we see that the man was called back. But this time, they posed the question differently, saying, So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. The Pharisees seem to be attempting to basically strong-arm the man into withdrawing his testimony, saying that glory should be given to God for this miracle, implying not to Jesus, and that the man should get in line and realize that Jesus is a sinner. After all, we know that Jesus is a sinner. Now this, of course, is a fallacious argument. They're using the fallacy of argumentum ad popularum. You know, they're basically appealing to the fact that the most people, the popular people, the Pharisees, believe a certain way, so you should too. I mean, it's basically an opinion poll kind of thing. Oh, well, since we believe it and we're, you know, the tops, you should believe it too. Well, that's not good logic, and it's not good argument either, as the man does not stand for this play. And he answers with an observation of the facts, saying, whether he's a sinner... I don't know, but one thing I do know, that though I was blind, I now see. Can I mention here briefly that there is a place for our personal experience in our testimony? I know we're very hesitant of that because, you know, it, personal experience cannot be the basis of our belief. Because experiences often change. If we follow Christ just because it feels good, then what do we do when it stops feeling good? So, I know we're kind of eerie to buy into this idea that we can use our personal experiences, but I want to challenge you that they should not be ignored altogether, because God uses the experiences in our life, and, and we've spoken of this many times. God puts many things before us. He places many things on our plate for some purpose, you know, for some design. So, we should not exclude them just out of the gate. But instead, we should see how we can use them to the glory of God. And I believe that's exactly what this man is doing here. Saying, you know what? I don't judge whether he's a sinner or not. But one thing I do know, I was blind and I now see. God has done something to me. Well, what ensues in verse 26 and 27 is a quite interesting interchange between the man and the Pharisees. As they ask again what Jesus did to heal him. And his reply is a bit sarcastic as it cuts deeply into the Pharisees, saying, I already told you what he did. Do you want me to tell you again so you can be his disciple? 
Imagine the look on the faces of the Pharisees as this man basically taunts them on the basis of their question. Verse 28 tells us that the Pharisees reviled the man and responded, You're his disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he's from. So again, they appeal to the law as the basis of their authority, claiming that they followed the law of Moses. But we've seen that in truth, they really don't even do that. They don't follow the law of Moses. Or they would have accepted Jesus, who is the fulfillment of that law. But what is fun to me with this passage is to see the courage and the strength of the man who is blind grow as the trial drags along. And so here in verses 30 to 33, we see it rise to a peak as the man answers him saying, Well, here's an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. See, he develops his own argument to counter the Pharisees' claim, starting out by taking a shot at the Pharisees, of course, noting somewhat sarcastically that, Oh, here's an amazing thing. You don't know where he's from. But we all know that he opened my eyes. And what's interesting is that he uses basically the same argument that the Pharisees were trying to use to condemn Jesus. And he uses it to lift Jesus up. See, the Pharisees had argued that Jesus was a sinner because he had broken the Sabbath and thus the miracle must not have been a true miracle because God does not do his works for those who are in sin. But this man's argument is basically the positive rendering of the same argument, saying, God does not hear sinners... Yet, he healed me, so God must have heard Jesus. Otherwise, he points out, Jesus could have done nothing. You see, this is the straw that broke the camel's back, as the Pharisees resort to just an ad hominem attack. They attack the man's character, saying, You were born entirely in sins, and you're teaching us? Ending the day by putting the man out of the temple. What arrogance they show. What hate toward the man. But thankfully, this is not the end of the story, for in the following verses, Jesus finds the man and asks him if he believes in the Son of Man. The man's response is simply, Who is he that I might believe? And Jesus' response is simple. Basically says, You're looking at him. You're hearing him. So the man believed, and we're told he worshipped Jesus. But the ending of this chapter is perhaps the most important part, as it shows us what role this story had in the scope of the whole book of John. This is what I was telling you about earlier. This is where the key point comes out. In verse 39, Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. In other words, Jesus has come to judge this world. Why? So that those who are blind may see. That is, those who are spiritually blind, who are blind from birth, just as this man was physically, who are sinners from birth and have never seen the true light of the world, as we are. Jesus has come so that they may see. But he's also come so that those who see will become blind. Those who have seen the message of the Messiah being foretold of, yet willingly close their eyes, will become blind. 
Their sin, their pride will blind them from seeing the truth. This is what makes sharing the gospel with people who have been exposed to the church and her ways so hard, because they have often seen yet willingly turn aside and become blind. This is what makes the Pharisees' predicament so hard. They have seen the scriptures, yet they rejected Christ, thus making themselves blind. And hearing this, the Pharisees nearby, possibly in a sarcastic mood, asked Jesus, Oh, we're not blind too, are we? But the answer is probably unexpected. But even more so, it's damning for the Pharisees. As Jesus responds, If you were blind, you'd have no sin. If you were like this man, you yearned to see the light. If you waited on God to provide the light, if you trusted in Him, then you would have no sin because you'd be waiting on God. You'd be following His will. But since you say we see, your sin remains. Since you claim you possess the light, even though you reject me, who is the true light of the world, you've sealed the deal on your guilt for your disobedience. In other words, it's not ignorance that's holding you back. It's the fact that you are willfully disobeying me that your sin remains. And that brings us to the end of our passage tonight, but I want us to look for just a second to see why this section is so critical at this juncture. Up to this point, we've seen a couple of signs performed by Jesus and have heard a good amount of his teaching. But as we head into John 10, where Jesus will lay out a parable describing his very character, John gives us this episode in John 9 to prepare for that. Why do you think that is? I think there's a distinct purpose in putting this story in this exact spot. And I think it's because the question becomes, as we enter the rest of the book, how do we know that what Jesus is saying is credible? I mean, it's great for Jesus to say he will lay his life down for sheep. It's great for him to make all the claims he has made thus far, but how do we know it's true? That's the very question that has been addressed here, and this is why the debate of the Pharisees is so critical. The purpose of the Pharisees' trial was not to refute that a man who is blind can now see, although it did take that route at times. Rather, the purpose of this trial was to try to stop what follows from the miracle. What I mean is that the Pharisees fought hard to win this trial, not because they didn't think the man could see, but because they realized that if the man could see, then it was an act of God. And if there's an act of God, it always verifies a message of God, which in this case is Jesus' message that He is the true light of the world. So the question never really was about this man. It was about whether or not what Jesus says is true on the basis of being a message from God. That is why this story was absolutely necessary. For now we can see that what Jesus says is not only true by comparison with the Old Testament scriptures, but is true on the basis that has been confirmed by God through the use of miracles. And so now we're prepared that as we go into the next chapter, we learn about Christ's nature as the Good Shepherd. We can know for sure that when He tells us that He will lay His life down, when He tells us that He calls His sheep, when He tells us the things we'll see, 
we can know without a doubt that it is true because it is the very words of God and so we end the title of this podcast with the very thing we begin with the blind will speak and truly begin to speak the blind will speak and will truly begin to see could I ask you a question as we close have you trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior have you relied on him to take you from your state of blindness to a state of true sight if not, I really want to ask you to think about it this week. and Feel free to contact me. Call a pastor. Call a Christian friend. Get a hold of somebody and ask them to show you who Jesus is. My prayers go out for you as you do so. But until we meet again, friends, may God bless and keep you. This lesson has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org, a paraministry of Clean Slate Evangelical Ministries, which is a nonprofit listener-supported ministry based in Monroe, North Carolina. While our desire is that your primary giving be done with your local church, if the Lord is leading you to support our ministry, we do depend on your support to keep our ministry going and growing. If you feel the Lord calling you to support our ministry, you can go to BibleStudyPodcast.org and click on support on the right-hand side. You can make a tax-deductible donation from there. By doing so, you'll be helping us to reach multitudes of people each and every month from around the world who, just like yourself, desire to find answers and meaning in Scripture. We thank you for listening today, and we pray that the Lord blesses you and draws you closer to Him. Keep growing closer to Jesus. Jesus.